Welcome to the third episode in a series of five podcasts focusing on the post-pandemic workplace. I'm Gillian Naylor, a partner in the Linklaters Employment and Incentives team. And today I'm delighted to be joined by my partner, Cara Hegarty, Jane Hiddley, a managing professional support lawyer in our team, and Daniel Dillamahalis, an associate in our team. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. So we've got a lot to cover in this episode. So without further ado, I'm going to turn firstly to Jane, who is very well placed to update us on efforts to increase board diversity, having recently surveyed a number of European and APAP jurisdictions on this topic. So Jane, starting first with what's happening in the UK, can you remind us what key initiatives have been in place to increase diversity in boards, actually and indeed at executive level, um, and maybe you can sort of uh, talk us through both in terms of gender and minority ethnic representation. Well, hello and thanks, Jill. Yes, so looking at gender diversity on boards, 2020 was due to be the year of the final Hampton Alexander report. The Hampton Alexander review was set up as an independent review body supported by government focused on increasing the number of women on FTSE 350 boards with an important additional objective to improve women's representation in senior leadership positions. In 2016, a goal was set of achieving a target of 33% female representation on the boards of the FTSE 350. The first Hampton Alexander Review was published in November 2016 and was due to run as a five-year annual review project of women leadership statistics. The statistics then feed into the report and are provided by companies on a voluntary basis with a view to achieving business-led change. Now, we would ordinarily be expecting the final report this November. However, because of the pandemic, that final report has been delayed until February next year. Companies will be reporting on a longer period, so 16 months, with the snapshot reporting date for companies being taken at 31st of October 2020. Thanks, Jane. So aside from the fact that the pandemic has obviously delayed the publication of the final report, do we have any kind of current indications as to whether that target of 33% has been or is likely to be met? So, Jill, as you know, we're recording this podcast just a week on from when the business secretary, Alok Sharma, announced on September the 22nd that for the first time, more than a third of the members in the UK's top 350 companies as a whole are women. So Jane, this sounds um, like positive news and that the pandemic hasn't necessarily halted progress. Yes, agreed. Uh, so on the face, the current figures show that despite the challenges faced by businesses through the COVID-19 pandemic, representation of women at the top of businesses has risen by 3.8% in the last year. However, while the FTSE 350 as a whole has now met the Hampton Alexander Review's target of 33% of board members, there remain a number of businesses that have not reached that mark. 
The latest data shows that 41% of FTSE 350 companies have not reached 33% representation of women. The number of one and done boards where companies have to date appointed a single woman board member has reduced, but there are still 18 boards with only one female board member. And there also remains one all male board. But this is down from 152 all male boards which existed in 2011. Mr Sharma has called for those companies to take action to ensure they individually reach the target ahead of the end of December this year. And this was also backed up by Chris Cummings, who's the chief executive of the Investment Association, who made a statement on behalf of investors to send a rallying cry to those companies lagging behind to take action now. And while this is good news, and there has not to date been a step back in the overall levels of representation, actually, I think it's too early to say whether the pandemic will have a longer term effect. And it will be interesting to see the final report, which will take into account figures up to the end of October. And even if the 2021 report shows further progress, I think we must hope that this will not be the last word to review the status of women on boards in the UK. Thanks, Jane, um, and agreed. Um, and how about progress in relation to ethnic diversity on boards? So this is the focus of the Parker Review Committee. And you will recall that in 2017, the Parker Review Committee on Ethnic Diversity and Business set a target for all FTSE 100 boards to have at least one non-white member by 2021 and for FTSE 250 companies to follow suit by 2024. So what progress has been made towards these targets? So yes, Jill, the, the Parker Review Committee issued its updated report in February of this year, with just one year to go until the 2021 target date for FTSE 100 companies. The key findings of the updated report were that 37% of FTSE 100 companies did not have any non-white directors on their boards. 69% of FTSE 250 companies did not have any non-white directors on their boards. And 59% of FTSE 350 companies do not have any non-white directors on their boards. And representation at CEO level was very low with only one black CEO in the FTSE 100. So while the 2020 report identifies that some progress has been made, clearly far more needs to be done to meet the target. Thanks, Jane. Um, and um, I mentioned very briefly in my introduction of you that you have recently um, overseen a global survey focusing on board diversity. And in fact, um, I believe that there are two infographics that are available on our um, client knowledge portal, um, which uh, people can look at. But can you just tell me, um, you know, sort of in, in high level terms, what that research focused on and what the key takeaways are from it? So, yes, Jill, um, uh, and thanks for mentioning those. Uh, we did. Uh, uh, we carried out research into board diversity uh, across Asia 
and this included Australia and also one on Europe. The survey did not solely focus on gender diversity, but was more broadly across whether there are mandatory quotas or other requirements, such as voluntary targets or requirements for representation of underrepresented groups. Our figures represent the position pre-COVID-19, but it will be interesting to revisit the data and review the position post the pandemic. Looking at what the survey found, there are a few interesting points to highlight. Firstly, on Europe, we surveyed across 12 jurisdictions, so Belgium, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Poland, Portugal, Spain, Sweden and the UK. Uh, interestingly, where we have our link latest offices, with the exception of Ireland, we found that in Europe, representation of women on boards had gone up between 2017 and 2019. Although aside from France, no country had reached or exceeded 40%. Of the countries we surveyed, there are mandatory targets in Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, Spain and the Netherlands is proposing to introduce mandatory targets. Otherwise, countries rely on the voluntary comply or explain provisions which are in their corporate governance codes. Now, where there are mandatory targets, these typically range from 30 to 40%. In France, where there is a mandatory quota of 40% for certain companies, the level of representation of women on boards was 45.2% in 2019, uh, and this was the highest percentage across the jurisdictions which we surveyed. The focus of targets, whether mandatory or voluntary across the European jurisdictions we surveyed, was definitely focused on gender diversity, and the UK was the only country that had any form of voluntary target which related to ethnicity. Thanks, Jane. Um, that sounds like a really interesting survey. And um, as I mentioned, that infographic is available on the um, Client Knowledge Portal. Um, Daniel, now moving on to um, the second topic that we were going to focus on, which is around pay gap reporting and actually specifically on gender pay gap reporting. What has the impact of the pandemic been on pay reporting obligations? Hi, Jill. In the UK, the gender pay gap reporting deadline, which ordinarily would have been in April, was suspended earlier this year by the government. This has resulted in an incomplete set of statistics on some 3,000 employers who had already reported as at the announcement, which was made in late March, and others who reported voluntarily, regardless of the suspension. Okay, and, and Daniel, what exactly did the government say about the suspension? Yes, it's important to note that the government said that it would not punish organisations who failed to publish their gender pay statistics due to the pandemic. Essentially, it suspended its enforcement powers so companies that did not report will not face any investigation this year. However, the government still expects organisations to do gender pay gap analysis. Thanks, Daniel. And what do you think? So once mandatory reporting resumes, um, what kind of impacts can you see arising from the pandemic that we might see 
emerging in terms of uh, pay gap data in the future? Of course, we cannot know for certain until we see how the figures play out. But based on research and statistics regarding how the pandemic has impacted women in the workforce, there may be a negative impact on the pay gap. First, the effect of the reduced basic pay or furlough may disproportionately affect women. Women comprise the majority of workers in the two industries that have seen the most furloughed workers, the accommodation and food services industry and the arts, entertainment and recreation industry. Although the furlough scheme itself was a temporary measure, there are companies who have implemented reduced pay as a more permanent measure to deal with the consequences of the pandemic. However, given the snapshot in time nature of the gender pay gap reporting, it remains to be seen whether these systemic changes materialize in future years gender pay gap statistics. Second, the implication for the pandemic for childcare arrangements may have forced more women out of the workforce or into other roles, either temporarily or more permanently. It is not yet clear what long-term impact this may have. And third, in general, women are at greater risk of having their roles being made redundant or who are subject to firing and rehiring. McKinsey reports that particularly young women score the highest on jobs at risk of all age and gender groups, partly because of their high representation in jobs in the retail, administration services and hospitality industries. It should be borne in mind that these points will likely throw off course what it had been until the pandemic, 20 consecutive years where the gender pay gap had reduced year on year, albeit slowly. Finally, it should be noted that the full extent of the pandemic will only be completely measurable in a number of years time due to the 12 month lag time in organisations gender pay gap reporting. Thanks, Dan. So really, it remains to be seen what um, impact that will have. Um, and um, ethnicity pay gap reporting, that was something that was quite high on the political agenda in the last few years. But what is happening about that now? Can, can we still expect to see that in the future? There's been nothing formal yet, but it's certainly an area where we expect to see change uh, on the legislative agenda in the near future. In January 2019, the government closed its consultation on the introduction of a mandatory ethnicity pay gap reporting framework. In June 2020, the government committed to issue a response to the consultation by the end of 2020, although it's possible this will be further delayed given the ongoing focus on managing the pandemic. In September 2020, PwC published an updated report on how organisations were preparing to report on ethnicity pay gap issues. Their research indicates that 68% of organisations collect some pay gap information about ethnicity, up from 53% in 2018, and that 50% of organisations intend to report their ethnicity pay data in the next three years. Given the level of public support for the introduction of mandatory ethnicity pay gap reporting, it seems likely that we will see developments in this regard in the next few years. Of course, if the government does decide to introduce mandatory ethnicity pay gap reporting, this will require new primary legislation and detailed regulations to be introduced. In the meantime, we will no doubt continue to see voluntary reporting, but without a mandatory framework, it's difficult to draw proper conclusions or comparisons from voluntary published data. Thanks, Daniel, and agreed. Um, if I can come now to you, Cara, 
um, and thank you for um, waiting. Um, so on remuneration, although um, it's already a sensitive issue in the UK, I think that the pandemic has really highlighted social inequalities. Um, what do you think this might mean for executive pay reporting, particularly the new director's ratio um, reporting requirements? Thanks, Jill. Uh, so executive pay, um, particularly that received by listed company directors, such as CEOs and CFOs, has been a closely scrutinised and critiqued topic by social commentators for many years now. But more recently, as you referred to, there have been a few changes that are leading to increased attention in this area. Last year, quoted companies were required for the first time to report the ratio of their CEO's pay to the pay of their average UK employee at the 25th median and 75th quartiles. And from this year, new changes introduced by the second shareholders' rights directive mean that com quoted companies will need to publish the percentage changes in pay for all directors on their board. And as you say, against the background of concerns about the effect of the pandemic on ethnic minorities, women, and the lowest paid members of our society generally, I'd expect that companies publishing their director to employee pay ratios, and indeed their single figure numbers for directors generally, will be even more mindful of the potential criticism they may receive if the pay packages of those at the top are perceived as being out of step with current societal expectations. So for these companies, I think contextual messaging will be key. We've already seen a number of high profile directors and in some cases their executive teams as a whole take voluntary temporary pay cuts or redirect a portion of their pay to charitable enterprises. In other cases, we've seen remuneration committees cancel or greatly reduce bonus or share plan awards for the year. Whilst these responses have been positively received, given it is likely the economic impact of the pandemic will be felt by many and for a long time to come, it will be interesting to see how executive pay is impacted over the longer term as well. And Cara, um, despite the sort of voluntary pay cuts that you've mentioned, um, I've seen many commentators suggest that executives are um, not seen as sharing the COVID-19 impact pain. Um, so what are we seeing in terms of government, regulator and indeed investor pressure in this regard? So the government, regulators and investors are clearly calling for pay restraint. But so far, the only formal prohibitions relating to executive pay to apply um, have been applied to companies who are borrowing through the coronavirus large business interruption loan scheme or the Bank of England's COVID corporate financing facility. Depending on the loan levels and terms, cash bonuses and pay rises for senior management, including the boards of companies accessing these programs, are restricted. But that apart, there is certainly highlighted scrutiny of pay decisions and an expectation generally that pay decisions will not be taken in isolation, but rather that they will reflect the specific situation of the company, which is sometimes referred to as the shareholder experience and indeed the context of the pandemic more broadly. For example, where dividends have been reduced or cancelled, then there is an expectation that pay levels will be scaled back as well. Similarly, if a company has taken significant levels of government support, either through loan arrangements or perhaps the furlough scheme, 
or has made employees redundant, investors are very conscious of the reputational damage that could arise if executive pay levels are unimpacted. I'd expect this to continue in respect of the government's new wage subsidy scheme as well. And looking at financial services companies specifically, regulators have said they do not want any senior employees receiving bonuses where such, where such payments may risk the bank's financial stability. The PRA also directed the UK's seven largest banks not to pay any bonuses in respect of 2019, but this direction came too late for most of the banks concerned. Thanks, Cara. Um, and so what are the legal risks to be mindful of for companies? So in relation to elements of remuneration that are truly discretionary, from a legal perspective, it is normally quite low risk to reduce or cancel future entitlements. However, it is often much harder to unilaterally change or reduce current remuneration arrangements, such as in-flight share plan awards, bonus arrangements for the current year or salary or pension levels, as these from a legal perspective may already constitute contractual entitlements of the employee. In my experience, it is pretty common for companies to believe they have more power or discretion to alter or reduce remuneration elements than they really do. Once you go through the detailed paper, paperwork the company has, the position sometimes uh, changes. What a company considers discretionary uh, as an element of pay often turns out not to be so. Therefore, in many cases where a company wants to reduce or change pay levels because it is seen as perhaps the right thing to do, they either need to make sure their executives are aligned with the approach and, and expressly consent to those changes, or else take the risk that employees may bring potentially successful claims in the future. Thanks, Cara. So I mean, how have we seen some of these kind of legal risks and issues play out in live situations that you've seen? So over the last year or so, many quoted companies have already been negotiating with their top employees to try to agree contractual changes that would reduce pension levels, in some cases quite significantly, over the next few years. And this has been in response to government and many institutional investors and proxy advisors demanding changes to bring executive pension levels into line with those of the majority of the, UK, of the company's UK workforce. And these expectations have had limited sympathy for the fact that companies from a legal perspective can generally not make these changes unilaterally. Companies have therefore invested a lot of time trying to find a mutually acceptable way forward with their executives and to explain the reputational risk faced by the company and indeed the executives themselves if the necessary changes are not agreed in good time. Companies, of course, have to take decisions in the round based on a number of factors, and litigation risk may be seen as the lesser evil compared to the reputational damage that would be caused if they took no action to reduce pay. Given the sensitive nature of the subject matter, I think there's sometimes a hope that an executive would not want to be seen as bringing a claim for more pay uh, with the background of the pandemic looming. That is, they would, may not be totally happy with a proposal to reduce their pay, uh, but they would not go as far as publicly suing for more. More often than not, I think that is how it plays out in practice, but we have seen a handful of cases where the executive did pursue the issue, so the legal risk must always be borne in mind. 
and having said all that, Jill, you know, I'm not a litigator, but I, so I wanted to turn the last question back to you, if I may, because I know you act on a lot of employment tribunal and high court litigation, often in the context of disputes relating to bonus or remuneration. So I'm interested to know, in your opinion, will the backdrop of the pandemic give employers any more justification for implementing changes that you know, normally I would say would be susceptible to successful legal challenge uh, under UK employment law? Uh, thanks, Cara. And yeah, that's a that's a good question. And my short answer is that in most cases, the answer is likely to be no. The backdrop of the pandemic doesn't necessarily give more scope. And the reason I say that is, is actually from experience, because what we saw back in 2008 with the financial crisis was um, a backdrop of quite a lot of regulatory and political pressure and um, economic uncertainty. Um, and that sort of pressure was brought to bear on financial institutions to reduce, withhold or indeed even claw back bonus awards. And at that time, um, remember we spent a lot of time looking at the bonus arrangements that were in place and indeed the surrounding communications to employees to try and determine the risk of breach of contract claims if, if steps were taken to withhold or reduce bonus um, awards. And I think what became quite clear from the remuneration um, lit litigation that ensued um, following various decisions that were taken is that a sort of backdrop of um, economic uncertainty or indeed of regulatory public and political pressure will not alter the court's approach to how they interpret and enforce the actual legal obligations. The courts will always look at the contractual position um, and, and, and consider that. But having said that, what I would say is that um, a legacy from the financial crisis is that we have seen um, far greater scrutiny of remuneration and bonus arrangements. And actually, as a general rule, um, we now um, are more likely to see um, included within bonus um, terms, things like appropriate powers and discretions for employers to be able to make adjustments or indeed to reduce or withdraw entitlements in reaction to impacts arising from unforeseen events, which could include things such as the pandemic. Um, but I would say that, you know, the point that you made earlier, Cara, is well made, um, and it's not always clear cut um, as to whether an entitlement is contractual or discretionary. And actually many arrangements are sort of hybrid in nature. And um, so that needs to be considered before any decisions are taken. Um, and also as an employment lawyer, what I would say is of course, always important to keep in mind the duty of trust and confidence as the manner in which a change is made or a discretion is exercised can also give rise to employment claims. Um, so I think the sort of takeaway is that as, as bonus litigation can be costly, it's sensible to consider the legal position at an early stage. And that will also help ensure that there's enough time to implement any change in a way that also mitigates that risk of trust and confidence claims. So that's the end of our episode in the series. But if you would like to discuss any of the topics that we've explored in this episode, or indeed in any of the other episodes this week, then please feel free to get in touch with um, any of us or indeed with your usual Linklater's contact. You'll also be able to find the board diversity infographics that we discussed earlier um, on our client um, knowledge portal. Thank you for listening and take care.